Father, thank you for your grace to us that we can open up your word and work our way through this beautiful storyline of your redemptive grace in the Old Testament. I pray that we would become more familiar with your long-suffering and patience with your people as we learn lessons, even as we just kind of fly over at a, at a high-level altitude, uh, the, the big overarching themes of some of these beautiful stories of your dealings with your people in the Old Testament. I pray that you'd encourage us. We, we pray, Lord, for this Sunday, we realize that there will be many people gathering in not just this church, but churches all across our city that um, are not trusting in Jesus. Some of them probably think that they are, and they're not, and some of them are coming by invitation, investigating the claims of Christ. And Regardless, Lord, we pray that the people that are, will be in this room, that you would give them ears to hear the gospel, and by your sovereign grace, you would open up their eyes to see and trust in Jesus and to hear and believe and to put their hope in what you have done in your son Jesus on the cross to, to atone for our sin and to reconcile us to you. And I pray that you would add people to your kingdom this Sunday in this room and in sanctuaries all across our city and our nation and the world, Lord. We pray that you'd bless the preaching of the gospel in your churches on this Easter Sunday. We pray for Springer and Josh's safe return as they are traveling back home from uh, Central Asia. Give them grace and traveling mercies, we pray. And I pray for their wives, Alicia and Laura Susan, as they await the return of their husbands. And Lord, we pray for the people in Brussels. We pray your grace to them and we pray for, uh, for comfort to people that are in a terrible place and state of mourning now and we pray for the witness of the gospel there that you would even through this great tragedy which we know that you do we see your hand all through the old testament how you work good out of evil lord would you do that in brussels and we pray for our military that is continually fighting uh, these terrorists around the world and we pray that you'd keep them safe and bring them home soon and we pray for our political situation and the the vitriol and the, uh, just the discouraging tone of our political campaign. We pray, God, for your grace. We pray that Christians would have perspective and uh, winsomeness and joy, even as we endure a very discouraging political season. We know that you're in control and give us that type of confidence and let it fuel our action, not cause us to be indifferent. And as we turn our attention to your word now, and encourage your people from your word, Lord, I pray, by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so just by way of review, remember we're working our way through the Old Testament. We broke the Old Testament down into three um, sections, maybe is a way you can put it. The first 17 books of the Old Testament are the <laughs> All right, the history books. Good, I'm encouraged. And so after the history, and remember the first five books of the history is the Pentateuch or the Torah, and that's what we, two weeks ago we looked at, but the, really the first 17 books. So we looked at the first five, now we're going to look at the next 12. Then the next, and remember, those 17 books, um, Genesis through Esther is the history of the Old Testament. It's the whole timeline. So if you feel like, ah, the Old Testament just seems so 
um, large and unwieldy, and some of the literature is really hard to read, um, know that you can get a sense of the story just by reading those first 17 books. That's from creation all the way till the 400 years before Jesus um, comes in the New Testament, okay? Then the next five books are the wisdom psalm, yeah, psalms, and the wisdom literatures are sometimes called the poets, and that's psalms and proverbs and Job and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Now those are, we call those wisdom literature because it's, it's, it's songs or proverbs or it's, it's really capturing human experience during the time of the, the 17 books of the history, right? So Job actually is really, really early on, probably during the time of Abraham, early on in Genesis. Um, and then the Psalms are kind of, you know, throughout the whole timeline, well, more towards the end, but written primarily by David. So it's more personal experience. And then the next 17 books, remember what those are? Prophets. And remember, we have major prophets and minor prophets, not because the major are more important than the minor. It's just because they're bigger, they're, they're larger, more volume. Um, and remember what we said about those prophets is those prophets fit into the timeline. Those are specific men that God has raised up to speak God's word of either rebuke or warning or judgment or consolation or encouragement to God's people during the time of the history books, really primarily starting around like First and Second Kings and kind of really towards the end. And so those prophets are all, all of those 17 prophets are, are doing their prophetic ministry during this time right before the exile and um, the exile and the post-exile. So just to give you a sense, just a reminder of where, where we are. So today, We've finished up with, um, with the first five books of the history, and we're moving on to the next 12, now Joshua through Esther. So just by way of review, remember, we started off with creation. Um, God has created everything, and he's called one man to make a nation out of this one man, and that one man's name is Abraham, right? So Abe, and through Abe comes a line of descendants, the patriarchs, and then this nation of Israel, they're really not called Israel yet. Um, they're not really fully a nation, but they are a family. There's about 70 of them, and they find themselves in e- Egyptian captivity at the end of Gen- at, Well, they're not captive at the end of Genesis. They're guests, but a couple of generations later, now at the beginning of Exodus, they are, they've increased in number but they are now slaves, not welcomed guests. And so God rescues them from Egyptian captivity by, through the hand of Moses. And then Moses takes the people to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. And now the rest of the Pentateuch, the next three books of the first five, is all about, really four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is all about the giving of the law and the wandering of God's people in the desert. Because remember what he promised Abe here? He promised him, he promised him offspring. He promised him land. And he promised him blessing. And this Canaan land. So they, they were in the land And because of the drought, because of their disobedience, they found themselves in Egypt, and now God is wanting to get his people 
back to the land. And now at the end of the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we end with Deuteronomy, where the people are at the edge of the promised land. Now remember from Sinai to the promised land, it was about a 12-day journey, and it took them 40 years. So it was not a... And that's kind of a, that's kind of a, of a picture of, of all of our sanctification, right? I mean, you know, we could, if we would just obey God, it would be a much quicker journey to Christ-likeness. But we don't we kind of wander in our own personal deserts? And so here, Deuteronomy is really just the second giving of the law. And now Moses dies, and now we pick up with, with Joshua. So here we are with the people on the edge of the promised land. Moses has died, and now Joshua is gonna is the new leader that God raises up that He's gonna help God's He's gonna lead God's people to cross over into the promised land. And so then Joshua, I've written a description here and I relied heavily on a few books, so these aren't really my words, but there were too many of them. I copied sentences from all over the place and but we're not publishing this, so I'm not you you know, n- none of this is really my original. In fact, I haven't had an original thought in about fourteen years. So anyway. So this is quoted from somebody, Mark Dever and a couple other guys. Joshua describes the conquest of the promised land that God promised to Abraham and its apportionment to the tribes of Israel. God's people could not boast of their military prowess because it was God who accomplished the victory in in the book of Joshua. Joshua summons God's people to be faithful to the covenant or to face judgment. So a couple of important themes in in Joshua is that um, Joshua is raised up. He crosses the people again miraculously. He leads the people across the Jordan, and that's a Jordan, that's an O, not an E, Jordan, not Jordan. The people cross the Jordan River, and, um, and miraculously, and now they're in the land, and a couple really miraculous things happen. First, they, they, they march around Jericho, a couple notable stories, you know, remember how they march around Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. Actually, before that, something significant, really, really significant happens in Joshua chapter 5, I think it is, where Joshua has this, um, he he has this interaction with this angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, this divine being. And Joshua asks him, you're familiar with her, he says, hey, whose side are you on? Ours or, you know, the Canaanites? And what does he say? He says, neither. So what's going on there? So I think what's going on there is the question isn't whose side is God on, but whose side are we on? He's the one in charge. We, he doesn't take sides. We, we need to choose. And so right there, we're, we're seeing this, this the, the, the utter sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to bow down to him. And a couple really... Um, uh, interesting things happen in the middle chapters of, uh, of Joshua. There's a bunch of battles with these people called, called the Canaanites. There may be different words used, but all of them are kind of a different tribe of this larger group of people called the Canaanites. Of course, marching around the Jericho, um, you know, the walls come tumbling down. Even before that, we see this really notable story where there's this woman named Rahab who is a prostitute, and she becomes a spy for God's people and helps God's people spy out the land in Jericho, and she receives God's grace, right? And she becomes a notable, notable figure in the Bible. And that's a story of God. Here is a Gentile 
prostitute, somebody that you would never think would be a recipient of God's grace, but yet every now and again, God will bring somebody in the story like that to be uh, somebody that receives God's grace to remind us through the ages that nobody is beyond God's ability to save. So Rahab, don't just when you read something like that, don't just say, ah, oh, no big deal, Rahab, boy, she sure had it good, I'm lucky for her. No, God is teaching us something about his extravagant grace that nobody's beyond his reach. Um, and so then they battle the Canaanites, and then towards the half, halfway through the book, they divide up the land. Now, something that's really... Um, important about Joshua. It's really one of the more controversial books in the whole Bible. Because if you've ever read Joshua, you know that uh, God commands Joshua to really annihilate the Canaanites. Okay, so the Canaanites are these pagan Gentiles in the promised land that God had promised his people. And God brings his people back into the land that he has promised them. Right? So all these blessings to Abraham are starting to be fulfilled. They were just 70 when they went down into Egypt, but now they're thousands. In fact, that's why Egypt started to hate them, because they were feeling threatened by them. So this has become true. He's, he's blessing them, certainly. And now he wants to bring them into this land, this rest. But there's the Canaanites in there, and God tells them to tells Joshua to wipe these Canaanites out. And that becomes a very controversial passage in the Bible. Is God now condoning genocide? And through the history of the church, people have erroneously uh, used this as justification for certain actions by Christians. Uh, they've used it for justification for racial prejudice. They've uh, and this has been a charge leveled at uh, Christians for a, a really an inconsistency. Like, God, you know, in the New Testament, God says, don't, you know, harm people, don't kill people. And what's going on here? Well, this is where it's important for us to understand what's going on in the redemptive storyline. And what God is doing at a particular point in history is not necessarily him condoning the way God's people are to act for all time. So what's going on with God? ordering, really commanding Joshua to kill the Canaanites. Well, I think there's a couple things going on here. And and let's all admit that it kind of causes us a little bit of heartburn, doesn't it? Well, here's here's a couple thoughts that I want us to think about. And by the way, if you go to that the Bible join the Bibleproject.com, um, they have a really good little explanation of this that I thought was really helpful. But first, let's remember that God is the creator of all things. God, now this is this is very un-American. It offends our American, individualistic, egalitarian, I am the captain of my own destiny sensibilities. It offends that. This is very un-American, but it's really quite biblical. <laughs> Which, by the way, you know those two things are not, don't always mix. America, right? You know that. And remember, I love America. But those things don't always mix. The first thing is God is the creator. He is the potter. We are the clay. So God can do whatever God wants to do. But we need to say more than that because God's not capricious and random and doesn't just he's not he's not he's not evil in any way. So the next thing we need to realize not only is God creator, but God is a righteous judge and 
if we remember what happened at Genesis 3, we know that nobody is neutral or innocent in and of themselves. All of humanity that comes from Adam and Eve is guilty by nature and by choice. If there's nothing we've learned about the Bible up to this point, and then Paul in Romans sheds much more light on it, is that there are no neutral people in the world. We are all by nature enemies of God. Now, let's admit that's a very difficult thing to... Again, that's not a very American concept, right? But the Bible's very, very clear. We are all sinners. We're dead. I mean, this, this Sunday I'm going to preach on Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, which is, I preached on it probably, it's probably the text I've preached on most at Crosspoint, and I'm choosing it because it is such, it's the gospel in short form, and it's, I want people that are coming to church on Easter to hear it, and the, the message of Easter is not, you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The message of Easter is we are dead in our sins, offending a holy God, even the seemingly moral people among us, and God has atoned for sin through the work of his son and has made a great number of people alive through his sovereign grace, right? So know that there are no innocent people. That, let's just admit that's hard, to, that's, hard, that's hard to think about, but it's biblical. And all people really stand under God's righteous judgment. There's no difference between us and the population of the earth before the flood. And then, another thing that we must remember, so one, God's creator, two, God is a righteous judge, three, what's going on in the Canaan land is that God is specifically doing something in this particular point of Israel's history where he is purifying a nation for himself through which will come his offspring, namely Christ. And so he is purging the, Can- the promised land of the wickedness of these Canaanite people. All right, so the Canaanites are a wicked culture. We read about in De- Deuteronomy how they were into child sacrifice and all sorts of wicked things. The Canaanites are a wicked, idolatrous, false, God-worshipping culture, and God is purging the land from this wickedness because he knows his people are so weak and they are not at a point of sanctification and holiness where they can influence the Canaanites. The Canaanites will influence them. And so this is not... See, this is what's going on in redemptive history. At this moment, God is so serious about the holiness of his people that the way he brings it about in this particular epoch of, human, of, of redemptive history is through the killing of an idolatrous, wicked people group. That, is not, that does not mean that Christians couldn't go around slaughtering people who don't believe in Jesus now. That was a particular time where God is displaying, in a particular instance, the seriousness of his holiness in his people. Now, I realize that that is still a very unsatisfactory answer for many people who look at this and say, but I think, I think that's what's going on. Any, let me pause there, because that's a serious issue in the Old Testament that many people have difficulty with. Any, let me pause have any questions and speak into the mic because we're recording it. So if you've got a question, hold your hand up and we'll, we'll get you a mic and you can talk into it. Yes, ma'am. Well, it's not a question. Yeah. It's a thought that, that just shows the pridefulness of man that we would judge God in what yeah. he decides to do. 
with his creation. And I just had to learn that over time. But oh, oh, yeah. I don't see that yeah. I, I could stand in place and judge God's decisions on what he chooses to do with his people. Amen, sister. <laughs> Hashtag boom. You're right. Exactly. You, you are exactly right. Yeah. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 9. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Right? So great point. Great point. Okay, now that's, a, that's a weighty question, right? And I think if you want to be a good witness for the gospel in a world that hates God's justice, um, you need to think about that. And I really encourage you to go re- read on it. Re- the ESV Study Bible has a good little article on that, or a good three or four paragraphs on it would be helpful. The Bible Project video is good on it. Okay, any other questions on, on um, the Canaanites? Okay, um, and then doesn't Joshua end so wonderfully? You know, Joshua, chapter 24, he renews the covenant. And there's that beautiful verse, I think it's verse 15 or 16. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Boy, that'd be a great one to, you know, paint on a board or something and hang in your house. Um, all right, Judges. Um, now, Judges is a, a wicked, wicked book, probably the darkest book in the Bible. It's the story. So what's happened is now God's people are in the land, right? And now um, they, Joshua's, um, Joshua's getting old and eventually dies. This strong leader dies. And now God's people are in the land, but they're wicked. So it's a story of 14 judges. Now don't think of... When you think of the word judge, don't think of Ron Mullins, right? It's not, like, it's not like an American judge at a civil court. A judge is more like a tribal chief, um, you know, like a military slash governor, right? So these 14 judges ruled over Israel after Joshua. The judges go from a kind of decent to really, really bad. <laughs> Just kind of like a, it's like a descent into wickedness towards as the book. And the cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, and then peace just kind of repeats itself over and over and over again. So God's people sin. Some foreign oppressor comes in. Some of the Canaanites that they didn't really fully kill in Joshua come back and, you know, um, oppress them. The people repent. God raises up a new judge who delivers them through... Uh, good, decent leadership for a little while, and then the judges whack and wicked, and then, and then it just re- repeats itself over and over and over again. The end of Judges is a wicked, the last three chapters of Judges is a wicked, 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 dark tale about some, a, a wicked rape, and then this, the, the husband of the woman who's raped then cuts up her body and sends it out to the 12 corners of Israel, and it's just, it's, I mean, it's just, just, just wicked, and that's the way the book of Judges ends. I mean, it's, it's not pleasant reading, right, and um, it's not one of the books that's easy to illustrate in a children's Bible, right, <laughs> and there's this phrase in Judges that it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was, it's repeated over and over and over again. And so a couple important themes in J- Judges is the pain of disobedience. We just see the debauchery of God's people. Um, God, we see God's patience despite uh, his people's failure. And then we see the need, just kind of in the background, we see this need 
for, or it's like we're crying out because this was repeated and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the last time that said in Judges, and it says, and there was no king in Israel. So everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's like amplified. There's just no righteous leader, right? And that's Judges. Then we get to Ruth, which is one of the most beautiful stories in the whole Old Testament and the whole Bible. In fact, we, we preached through Ruth a couple years ago, and Will is taking the young adults through Ruth. I don't know if you guys are finished yet. You, you're, you just finished it? You finished it a couple weeks ago. Beautiful story. And Ruth does not move the story of the people of Israel along. It's like a little, it's like a little pop-out of a particular, it's one little story of one family um, during the time of Judges, right? So it's not advancing the story. It's just one little, you know, uh, illustration of God's grace in the midst of all this darkness. And so you know the story, if you've read Ruth, is that there was a famine, and this family left uh, to go back to this place called Moab, outside of the Promised Land. The husband dies, the son-in-laws die, so you got this mother-in-law and her daughters-in-law. One of the daughters-in-law leaves the mother-in-law. One of them stays. It's Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She is a Gentile. Moabitesses all the way back in Genesis are these wicked people that were the offspring of, I'm drawing a blank, Lot, and, his, and an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Talk about a whack way to start a people group. I mean, it's, it's a wicked, wicked um, a, 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 a incestuous relationship that starts this people group. Ruth is an offspring of these people, and she becomes the, the, really the story of, and the recipient of God's grace. So then they move back. They go back to Israel. There's a story of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who is this Jewish man who becomes a kind of Christ-like figure who redeems or uh, marries Ruth to save the family. And again, it's, it's just this wonderful picture of redemption and again, God is redeeming, like he redeemed Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. He's redeeming. This would be scandalous for a Jew to read. What? Ruth, a Moabitess, is receiving God's grace? Yes, yes. Remember, remember what God promised to Abraham? He's dropping these little breadcrumbs all through the Old Testament. Because remember what he promised? I'm going back here like I still have it written up on the board, and then I realize it didn't. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not helpful. So... But remember what he promised in Genesis 12. Through you, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And even though Israel fails at that in the Old Testament by and large, you see these little breadcrumbs of that actually happening. You see it happening with Rahab, the Gentile who comes to faith. right? You see it through Ruth the Moabitess, this... this, this um, Gentile woman who should not receive God's grace, but does receive God's grace because of his kindness. Now then what happens, which is it maybe even more significant than any of that in Ruth, is it, it, is it Ruth and Boaz become the you know, great-great-grandparents of the, one of the central, maybe the central figure of the whole Old Testament, King David. And so da- the announcement of David and his line starts in Ruth. So Ruth is just a wonderful story. It's like a diamond against the black backdrop of judges. So that's Ruth. Any questions? There? Let me stop there. Anybody got any, anything at all? Going once, going twice. Okay, let's keep going. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Now here's a confession from your pastor. 
These, to me, are the most challenging books to read. Maybe not First and Second Samuel, because they're kind of the story of Samuel, David, or Saul, and David. But First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it, they're just to me they're hard to follow and read because they jump around with so many hard Hebrew names and different kings. And I just I feel like I'm the weakest in my knowledge of those particular books. But let's just go with, so that boosts your confidence is what I'm talking about, I'm sure. So here we go, first and second. So first and second Samuel is really about the last judge, Samuel, who is this judge prophet. If you want to read a beautiful story, read about his mother, Hannah, uh, there at the beginning of Samuel. Her prayer for her son is just beautiful. Um, and then David comes on the, after, after Samuel is now, grows up to be this great man of God who is a prophet judge, and God uses him to lead Israel and to anoint Saul as the first king. God's people say, we want a king like all the other nations, and God says, I, you know, I should be your king. But he gives them their requests, and all of this, again, is part of God's you know, superintending providential plan from eternity past, but he gives them a king, and Saul, Saul is a tall, good-looking joker. I mean, he is. I mean, he's just shiny teeth, 6'3", 220, benches about 400 pounds, runs a 4'5", 40, has a good arm, um, you know, he just has a great vertical, and he's got a sweet fadeaway jumper. He's just a stud. Right? He looks like a guy that would be a leader, but he ends up being a failure. Right? He is a selfish guy. He lies. He's, he's not faithful, and so God raises up this shepherd boy, David, who's one of like 12 sons and would have, never, would have been the least, again, the least likely candidate. But God, in his surprising way, is choosing people who don't seem like they would be the one. God chooses David to be the next king, and so then um, first and second Samuel is all about this relationship between Saul, the first king who fails, and David, the second king, who is the fulfillment of this great promise. And uh, much of the rest of first Samuel is about uh, David's relationship running from Saul and then David being installed there. And then second Samuel is about David's kingship. And second Samuel 7 um, is, if you have a Bible, open it to 2 Samuel 7. It really is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. It is the transition from um, kind of the, 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 the covenant with Abraham to the covenant with David and, David. and not that they're two different covenants. It's just like God's revelation of who he's, what he's going to do with his people and for his people is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. So he promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you land and blessing and offspring. I'm going to make a nation through you. But that was really all he said at that time. And now he's going to whittle it down and get more specific. And to David in 2 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God initiates and really tells David what he's going to do with him. And so David, at the beginning of chapter 7, is saying, look, I live in a palace, and God's people, or God's presence still dwells in this tent. So, you know, the people were in the land. They had a king now, but they hadn't built a, a house for God. And God's saying, wait a minute, you, 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 who told you that I needed a house? Like, you know, when I was with my people... And so he kind of chastises David a little bit when David says, man, I live in a palace, but God's still living in a tent. I think I should build God a temple. And, David, and God says to David, like, 
wait a minute, I didn't even ask you for this. Let me. But then he says, but I am going to build, I'm going to establish a throne through you, and your throne's going to endure forever, and you're going to have a son, and he's going to build a temple. And so that's what um, um, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is all about. And just a couple beautiful verses there, starting in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction is and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you for you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. I love this verse. Therefore you are great, O Lord. For there is none like you, and there is, none, there is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. He goes on to just praise God for his faithfulness. Take some time to read Second Samuel chapter 7. That's a real... It's not a turning point in the Old Testament. It's a further um, clarifying relationship where God is not just saying, I'm going to make a nation. Now he's even being more specific. I've made a nation. Now I'm going to make a king. And he's speaking about David's kingship and his son's kingship, Solomon. But ultimately, who is he speaking about? Obviously, we know now. We know he's talking about Christ, who is the true the true son of David. So um, we see the important themes there, God's covenant. And, and here's, the thing about, here's, the thing about, here's the thing about David. And this is really encouraging, that God calls David a man after his own heart. God establishes his covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just a few chapters later in 2 Samuel 11, we see David fail miserably with Bathsheba, Right? And so, even though there's this great hope, and in many ways David is a great king, we realize that our hope can never be ultimately here in an earthly king. We need a true and better king who will not fail us. And obviously, we know who that is as we come into the New Testament. That is Jesus. So, um, that's the major theme of First and Second Samuel. First and Second Kings are about the, the, the line of kings that come from David, his son Solomon, who is a decent king in some ways, but is a really arrogant, um, self-absorbed guy, a very wise man, uh, writes many of the Proverbs. And then Solomon has a son, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is an absolute knucklehead. And he is a young punk who doesn't listen to the elders of Israel. And because of Rehoboam being a a young, arrogant leader, the kingdom splits and the kingdom is divided now in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 all the way through the end of 2 Kings is really about the divided kingdom. You have the northern tribes of Israel, 10 tribes of Israel, and then the southern tribes of Judah. And 1 and 2 Kings is the story of about 40 kings eight of whom are about decent, the rest are pretty much bad, and it's just further futility of human's ability, you know, the kingship of a man. 
couple of really important figures rise up. Elijah is a prophet in 1 Kings. He's a very significant figure. Um, lots of wonderful stories in, in, of Elijah's life in 1 Kings. And then his, his um, protege, his, his, the guy who follows Elijah, the next prophet after him, Elisha. Very similar names, just a J and an SH. Elisha is the understudy to Elijah. And Elisha is the prophet in 2 Kings, right? And another really significant thing happen, happens. And you remember we've talked about God blessing the nations through Israel. Remember Rahab the prostitute? Then Ruth the Moabitess? Well, something really significant happens in 2 Kings. Naaman. You know Naaman, the, the, the leper? You probably had a... Sunday school song about Naaman. Well, Naaman was a commander of the Syrian army who is one of the people that are kind of warring against God's people. And Naaman, through God's grace, he has like a little servant girl who's a Jew. She tells him, yeah, but well, I've got this prophet back, at that, back at, in Israel that can help you out with that. And so Naaman comes and follows the prophet Elisha's instruction and gets healed. So again, that's another little breadcrumb, right? That God is intending to raise up a people, not just for that people, but so that through that people, he would bless all the nations of the earth. Those are really significant stories. Rahab, Ruth, Naaman. I'm sure I may be missing one or two, but there's more going on there than just a moral application in that story. There's something that God is showing his people and the church for all time, that he is for the nations. And he raises up his people, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the nations, right? So then Second Kings ends, and um, God's people are... Uh, then we move into First and Second Chronicles, although that doesn't really move the uh, storyline any more forward. First and Second Chronicles is a lot of a repeat of what's going on in Kings and Second Samuel, and it actually goes all the way back to the beginning of kind of Adam and traces the genealogy. So First and Second Chronicles is a lot of repeat. It's kind of like a large sort of mixed together story, retracing of the story. And during this time at the end of Chronicles, um, you have, and at Kings, you have the prophets. So that's when Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these guys are on the scene and they are warning God's people. Because remember, all these kings are terrible and they're leading God's people into just more unfaithfulness. And these prophets are being raised up during the times of these kings, and they're saying, repent, 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 or God is going to cause you to be conquered. And that's what happens. Remember, we talked about the prophets who we'll talk about next week. We had pre-exile, exile, exile, and post-exile. The the prophets are going to fall into one of those three categories. Well, a lot of these prophets are saying, repent, repent, or repent, or God's going to come and let some foreign captor, you know, conquer you. Well, that's what happens there at the end of Kings the Babylonian Empire comes and um, captures God's people and um, destroys Rome and carries off you know, a, a, a great many of God's people back to Babylon. And now God's people, remember, so Abraham, promise, disobedience in Egypt, saves them, wander in the desert, miraculously brings them back in the promised land, gives them a king, but they still jack it up. They're in the promised land. After all these kings... Disobedience, disobedience, warning, 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 and then captivity, and they get carried away to Babylon. And that's the end of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So it's really, a, it's really quite a sad story. Okay, 
Then, um, another couple, we haven't really talked even about the temple, but Solomon during this time builds the temple, and the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. So all of this, this worship that happened in the tent, all of these sacrificial systems now happen in the temple, and it's destroyed by the Babylonians. And then the last three books of the New Testament, and we end with this, and I'll, I'll try and go quick and then um, finish it up, and any questions, is, is God raises up Ezra and Nehemiah, to be two uh, men along with some other builders that lead God's people back from captivity to go back and rebuild Jerusalem's t- the temple in Jerusalem and the walls. Remember this Sunday, if you were here this Sunday, I was talking about God's sovereignty over the nations. And like in the prophet Isaiah, God speaks through Isaiah, warning God's people about the impending Babylonian judgment. And as he's warning God's people, he just mentions that there's this guy named Cyrus that's going to come, and Cyrus hadn't even been born yet? Well, Cyrus ends up being a Persian king, and so God's people... Where's my marker? I'm all over the place, man. What's going on here? Oh, there it is. So God's people have been taken, so they're in Jerusalem, right? Bad kings. They get carried away to Babylonian captivity, right? And they're in Babylon... During this time, Isaiah's on the scene, and he's saying, don't obey God, obey God, obey God. If you don't, you're going to get carried away to Babylonian captivity. And as he's warning them, he's also saying, oh, and then God's going to have this shepherd, this servant named Cyrus, and he's going he's to lead my people back. And we're like, what? Who's Cyrus? Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. Well, God's people are in captivity in Babylon, right? This is the book of Daniel, Daniel and the lions and all this kind of stuff. Well, after God's people are in captivity to Babylon, there's these, this nation called uh, Persia, modern-day Iran. God raises up Persia to conquer the Babylonians. Now, if Colin has 10, if he's a bully, if Colin's a bully, and he beats up Robert, and he takes Robert's $10, and I know this is impossible because you're a lot bigger and stronger and younger than I, but then I went and beat up Colin. I get everything that Colin stole from Robert, right? So the Persians took the Babylonians' lunch money, which was the Jews, and now the Babylonians' captives are now the Persians' captives. But guess who's the king of Persia? Oh, this cat named Cyrus who God prophesied before he was even born through the, prophet Israel, uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And Cyrus, although he's got a lot of issues, is gracious to God's people and allows them to go back to Jerusalem. And that's Ezra and Nehemiah. And begin to rebuild the temple and the walls. Isn't that amazing? Right? And so that's where the Old Testament ends. And that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Wonderful stories of revival and repentance and great, great stories in there. And then Esther, by the way, not all of the Jews went back to Jerusalem, but many of them stayed in Persia. And after Cyrus, there were other kings. Then God raised up a Jewish queen, a young woman named Esther. And she actually became, she was caught the eye of the Persian king and she became his queen. And because she was where she was, she actually thwarted a plot 
to kill the Jews. And so that's why you know that wonderful line in Esther. I think it's in Esther 4 where it says that, where she surmises that I was sent to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know that word? Everybody quotes it, but they don't really know where it comes from. Well, it's, it's Esther in God's providence being raised to that position in Persia while the rest of her countrymen are back rebuilding the temple and the walls. And she's realizing that it's God's hand that is exalting her to the position of being a queen so that she can thwart the plot to kill the Jews that are remaining in Persia. Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that great? And you may ask along this, along this you may, why can't God just snap his fingers and make his people kind of in their place? Well, he can. But isn't that the same question that we ask ourselves? Why can't God just snap his fingers and make me not have to deal with that sin anymore? He can, but he doesn't. So therefore, he has some great and grand purpose for us in our sanctification, right? And I think that's what's going on here. This is just a wonderful, beautiful, rugged, hard picture of sanctification. As God deals with Israel, so he deals with his people. It's a wonderful picture of just God's long-suffering grace with his people in sanctification. Okay, three themes from the history of the books. From the, from the history books, um, God is raising up a particular people, right? That's Israel. And remember, Israel um, then is within Israel. You have kind of true Israel, and, and Israel then really becomes, there, I think there's one people of God throughout the whole Bible, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. The church doesn't replace Israel, but the church is included in true Israel, so God has a particular people all throughout the Bible. But why do these particular people exist? They exist because he wants them to be holy. So God has a passion for the holiness so that through his people, he can, uh, he can display his goodness to the whole world. And through this whole Old Testament, even though as wicked as it gets, God is always giving them a promise of hope and a coming soon soon coming, better king, who ultimately is, is Jesus. Okay, any questions before we wrap it up? Any questions at all? Before I give you three tips on how to read the Old Testament. Sarah Ann, from behind the glass cage. Okay. Um, okay, so as you're reading in First Samuel, and it, I guess it becomes more clear once they build the temple with Solomon, mm-hmm. but before that, like... When Moses is around and even when Joshua is around, it's really clear who's in charge of doing the sacrifices for the yeah. people. But then you get into 1 Samuel and Solomon, nah, yeah, Saul, Saul screws up and mm-hmm. he sacrifices to God and Samuel tells him, you shouldn't have done that. And I was under the impression when I first read it that Samuel was supposed to be the guy doing it because he lived with Eli in the temple and I thought that's where they sacrifice. Yeah. But then Samuel's not really the guy that does it because you said he's a prophet slash judge. judge. Yeah. Yeah. So where are they supposed... Because they seem real divided at this time because then they like one section of God's people will go and kill... They'll go to battle against somebody and then another section will, mm-hmm. but they don't seem like cohesive and there doesn't yeah. seem to be like a specific place where they're supposed to be sacrificing they yeah. are to an extent, but maybe they're not. Because sometimes they're turning away from God and not doing what they're supposed to be doing anyway. So Yeah. That's a good question. I'd have to think more deeply about it and kind of figure out what's going on there. I don't know that I have a great answer. And maybe Robert could help me out or maybe Logan could. But I would say that part of what's going on all the way back in Leviticus 
is that a lot of the sacrifices are kind of two-pronged. There's prescriptions in Leviticus, really especially early on in Leviticus, Leviticus about personal sacrifices that an individual person is supposed to make. And then there's the priesthood, the Levites, that um, are to be the priests that offer sacrifices for the whole nation, um, like on the Day of Atonement and on larger festivals. Um, so maybe there's some going back and forth there that becomes hard to decipher as we're reading, but Robert, you got to stab at that. That's a good question, Sarah, and I wish I could do better for you. Um, oh, my goodness. So sorry. Uh, yeah, at this time, it's, I'm, I'm taking a class on this actually right now, so it's hot on the brain. Um, Israel is so split up, and there's just no centralized government. That's the whole problem, is that there, there's no one to rule the religious life of the people. And so... Samuel steps in as that guy, uh, but even he is still, he's, he's, not, he's not one of the, the, the official priests. There's no official temple, so there, there is no centralized way to worship God, which is, is kind of the point, is that we need someone who's going to centralize it in the right way. Um, and so Eli is, he's a joke, his sons are scoundrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's almost at this point that you just see God's grace in, in the lives of his people that he would allow them to worship him in, in ways that are less than ideal, but still okay. So later on in, in Samuel and in Kings especially, it becomes a real big problem that you have these kings offering sacrifices on high places. That's a, that's a problem, right? But, but early on in Samuel... Samuel himself is there for one of these high place sacrifices, but it, but it's it's almost as if it's okay. It's not ideal, but we'll allow it if you abide by everything else because this is really all we've got right now. And so I think that's kind of an answer to your question that there's a problem with the way Saul does it because the whole thing is he was supposed to have waited on Samuel, and he was impatient and refused to wait and decided he was going to force God's hand, and by offering the sacrifice was trying to really play God. And so instead of abiding by the rules that they had, he tried to short-circuit it all, and, and that's what got him in trouble. That's good. Does yeah. that answer your question? Is that helpful? Oh, come on. That was a good answer. <laughs> do you, Logan, do you have anything you, you could add to that? that might, uh, give, him a, give Logan, give Professor Copley the microphone. Clean up, clean up our mess on aisle three with you. <laughs> No, Robert, no, that was a great answer, Robert. That, no, it was. It was very great. I was going to say as well, like at this time, there, there was a priesthood. Um, so in uh, 1 Samuel 22, um, you know, Saul kills uh, a, a lot of these mm-hmm. priests because when David's fleeing from Saul, uh, one of um, Saul's uh, uh, servants was, was Saul David at, the, at this, um, this place of worship. And it, I think like Doag, the Edomite or whatever, mm-hmm. told Saul, and they ended up killing this family of priests. So there, there was... A priest at this time, and then later on, when David um, is coronated and becomes king, like he has, um, you know, many different uh, people who fulfill like priestly roles and uh, people who are involved in in the, in the worship. So, like Zadok the priest uh, is an important figure at that time, and then he also has people uh, who are involved like in, in worship and in, in songs at that time. So the priesthood um, is still around, but then uh, obviously when Solomon comes along and they, they create the tabernacle, it becomes. Uh, much more centralized, as y'all are yeah, saying. Yeah. So. And isn't that, I mean, you know, but yet even though God's people are 
worshiping him in a completely disordered way, yet he's gracious. And isn't that the case with us as a church? Right? Do you think we're striking every right note in our gathered worship? Of course not. But yet God is long-suffering with his people, even as they descend into debauchery and foolishness and even idolatry. And, you know, God, God bears with his people. It's so encouraging. Good answer, guys. Any other, any other questions? Okay, so three tips here are three things to consider when reading the Old Testament. One, understand where you are in the redemptive history storyline. I think that's really important, right? So, you know, if you're in Joshua 5 or 6 or 7, 8, when he commands Joshua to exterminate the Canaanites, know that that is not justification for us to wipe out a whole people group, right? Okay? Now realize God may act in unique ways for unique purposes. So just kind of understand what's going on, where you are. So that's kind of knowing, just kind of having a sense of uh, where where God's people are in the redemptive storyline. That just... And I don't think, I don't pretend to think that just because we've done this for a couple of weeks, we'll know it. I mean, you have to continually remind yourself and become familiar with this story. Um, it'll just be helpful for you to kind of have those handlebars. Two, seek to connect what you're reading to the gospel. Praise God that we live now. And remember what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And remember what he upbraided the religious leaders of the day with in Genesis 5. He says, you you search the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find life, but you don't realize that they testify about me, right? That's what he says in John 5. And then in Luke 24, he says to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, oh, you foolish of heart and slow to believe all that the prophets have said about me. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to teach them all that the law and prophets talk, how they're all pointing to him. So when we read the Old Testament, and remember we started off, you can overdo this. I mean, you can, you can look for symbols of Jesus behind every rock in the Old Testament. And I think that's overdoing it. But when we see, when we read these stories, realize that they're in some way all pointing towards what God is bringing about this promised one, right? So again, the story of David and Goliath is not about us digging down deep and having more courage. It's about David who's a a foreshadowing of Christ, who's the true warrior king. We're like Israel, scared in the woodline. Right? The story of Moses, the little boy who had a speech impediment, who now is raised up by God to be this great leader. It's not meant primarily to be an encouragement for people who have stage fright. And Moses is a picture of Christ. And we are like Israel in Egyptian captivity. So read, think of the Old Testament, read it through the lens of, of the gospel. And then finally, Yes, let's look for application for life today, but let's look at it. Um, let's look at it, you know, kind of through this rubric of what does this text teach us about God and His holiness and His ways? What does this text teach us about ourselves? And what does this text teach us about what we need or need to do? I think that a lot of what um, is written in 
like curriculums and sold in books at Lifeway and other places like that, a lot of very popular authors zero in and only do number three. They take the Old Testament and they shrink it down. It's like they dehydrate it of all of its nutrients and make it into an MRE, right? And it's just, I mean, I guess it'll keep you alive, but it tastes not as good as it should, right? And if you're not in the army, you don't know what I'm talking about. But the, 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 the Old Testament is so much more rich than that. And so many teachers today just look at the Old Testament as mere moral application. Um, and don't jump right into three. Know where we are. Think about the whole timeline. Think about how it points to Christ. And then think about, okay, how does this apply to me? What does it teach me about God and myself? And what does this text teach about what we need or need to do um, in light of what God has done for us in Christ? All right, any other final questions before I pray? Next week, getting into the prophets. And then last week, we're going to do just a little bit on wisdom literature, and then we're going to get to ask Bill Harrison some questions and answers. If you have any, if you, he's an elder candidate. And we're going to last half of two weeks from now, on our last Monday, when midweek fellowship, we're going to have Bill Harrison up on stage, and I'll be asking him some questions, and you'll get to ask some questions. And um, then we're going to vote on Bill, Lord willing, the first Sunday of May at our member meeting. So that'll be the plan. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for these uh, brothers and sisters, and thank you for just the beautiful truths we see in Joshua through Esther, that you create a people for your glory, and you have not created these people merely for themselves. You didn't create Israel, and you didn't create the church just so that we could be the church, but so that through us, you might display your glory to the nations, to the Rahabs, to the Ruths, to the Namans, uh, and to all those, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, may, may we be a peculiar people who are called out of darkness into your marvelous light so that we might proclaim your mercies to an onlooking world and you might draw uh, many Ruths, many uh, Rahabs, many Namans, many people that are far away from you to yourself through the gospel that they see preached and lived out in the life of your people, the church. Lord, may it be so. And do that even this Sunday, we pray, as we gather to celebrate your resurrection, the resurrection of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, be blessed. We'll see you next week.